Amen. You may be seated. We've uh, begun looking at Jesus in his encounters uh, with people in the Gospels, and uh, we started this a few weeks ago, um, and we're doing it to answer the question, what, what is King Jesus like? That's, that's our name, Christ the King. What is King Jesus like? What kind of king is King Jesus? Uh, we know what earthly kings are like. We, we know what worldly kings are like. Uh, what kind of king is King Jesus? And the thing that, that I really, um, I guess I want to say, and I feel like I'm probably going to say this every week, um, we're doing this not so much to answer that question alone, but we're doing it because at the heart of Christianity is this idea um, that Christianity is... It's not so much a set of ideas. It's not so much a moral code. It's not, you know, as, as I like to refer to it sometimes, it's not a quiver in the liver. It's not a religious experience. I stole that line from a friend. Um, but it really is an encounter and a relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen king. Um, and that's a question I think that each of us wants to be asking himself or herself. Do I know Christianity in this sense? Do I know it in this way? As I read through the Gospels and I see Jesus walking through the pages of the Gospels, do I understand that the Jesus whom I see in the pages of the Gospels, the Jesus who touches people, the, the Jesus who embraces people, uh, the Jesus who heals and cleanses, the Jesus who forgives, the Jesus who is not afraid to touch the coffin of a dead man, do I, do I understand that that Jesus is alive? And if he is alive, as he was known then in the pages of the Gospels, he may be known today. It's different, certainly. He's not here physically. He's not here present in a material body. But you see, that's some of the significance of the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is where historic Orthodox Christian Trinitarian theology begins to make a difference. Because the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of Jesus. He's not a freelance agent. He doesn't work independent of the Father and the Son. He is commissioned by the Father and the Son. He is the spirit of the Father and the Son. So when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and is seated in glory, the Father and Son send the spirit and it is the spirit who indwells the church and empowers the church and mediates the very presence of Jesus into this world. You can't see him in the way that Jesus could be seen and touched and handled in, in the way that John describes in his first letter. But we've got to understand that he's here. There's more. Listen, folks. If, I, if, if there's, there's one thing I'd like to do if I could do it, I would love for just a nanosecond to pull back the veil. No one in this room would remain on his seat or her seat if that happened. Every one of us would be on our faces before the majestic presence of the glorious Christ. You just don't see him. And it's frankly, it's a good thing you don't because you'd be toast. Right? But I, I just want to stress this, that he is here and it is because he is here and it's because the Spirit of God is in the church and in the midst of the world, the spirit of Jesus, no longer limited physically, 
But here, Jesus is able to meet people. And people may have a real encounter with the risen Christ because he is alive. And that's not just an idea in somebody's head. That's the heart of Christianity. That Christianity is an encounter with the risen Christ. And Christianity is an ongoing relationship with Jesus. And so we read the Gospels not to see what Jesus was like, but to see what Jesus is like. To see how Jesus does interact with people, how he relates to people. How people encounter him and respond to him and how he then responds to them. Um, I've shared this, this silly little illustration, but there was this uh, football player, Lem Barney was his name. He played for the Detroit Lions back in the 60s. He was a Christian, a serious-minded Christian. He used to minister in prisons. He'd go into the prisons, and he preached the gospel in the prisons, and he was preaching one time, and he was getting into it, and it was impacting him. That happens when preachers preach, you know. When real preaching is going on, it's not, it's not an address you know, sometimes people will say, I liked your speech. Okay? When it's really happening, when God the Spirit is present and it's happening, something's happening, you see? And the preacher gets caught up in it. And this happened with Lem Barney, and he's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about the very things I'm talking about. And he's looking at his audience, and he stops in the midst of his thing, and he says, if this doesn't turn you on, you ain't got any switches. See, we're t this is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about trying to understand what Jesus was like. We're talking about what Jesus is like, the way that he is now, and how he relates to people now, right now. People just like this lawyer. Okay? People just like this lawyer. So as we look at this encounter in Luke chapter 10, that's what I want to encourage you to remember. Jesus still meets, meets people and he meets them powerfully. And he meets them in the way that he met the widow at Nain. And he meets them in the way that he meets this particular lawyer. And there are three things, as always, three things that I want to pull out of this. There are lots of pegs that could come out of this text that you can hang things on. But I just want to, I just want to identify three of them. Three pegs that you can hang this story on. First, there is Jesus' perception. His perception, that is what he sees. When you perceive something, you see something. Jesus' perception, what does he see? And then there is second, Jesus' pedagogy. I know last week and the week before was pathos, power, and purpose. We got this P thing going on. I'm, you know, sorry, but there is first Jesus' perception, and then there is his pedagogy, the way he teaches. That's what pedagogy is. It's how people teach, and it's where they're going when they teach. And so what is Jesus' pedagogy? And then finally, what is the point? What is the big point? Where is Jesus taking us with this teaching? Where is he driving us with this teaching? So first there's Jesus' perception. What does he see? And let me suggest to you, and this is, I think, so very important for maybe all of us, but I, I would guess for some of us in this room to understand what Jesus sees is a person. What Jesus sees is a person. He sees a person with a problem. 
He sees a person with a problem whose problem is beneath the surface, which gets us into his pedagogy and the way he teaches. But the first thing to see is that Jesus sees a person. He sees a person who has a problem. Now, I do this stuff full time. And I have to tell you right out of the chute that I'm convicted by this because I tend to see people as problems. I tend to see people as problems, and I tend to project that onto Jesus about myself and about others and think that Jesus views people the way I view people. And I'm just confessing to you. Maybe I'll lose my job over this, get fired. I don't know, but I'm just confessing to you. I'm just being honest. Jesus does not see people as problems. He sees people who have problems, and he engages them. He doesn't dismiss them. He engages them. It's easy to see Jesus engaging people whose problems are like the problem the widow had in Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain, who is a widow who has lost her husband, who is now alone in the world because she's lost her son. It's easy to see those kinds of problems. But Jesus encounters a different kind of person here who has a different kind of problem. Jesus is encountering a person who wants to take him out. He wants to take him out. That's what this lawyer wants to do. He's described as an expert in the law. That's the way the NIV has it. An expert in the law. What a great occasion this would be for lawyer jokes. Uh, But we're not going to do that. Um, Jesus looks beyond these things. And there are a couple of things in the text that give us an idea of what it is that Jesus sees. Verse 25, behold, a lawyer or an expert in the law, as I just said, an expert in the law, Put him to the test. Put him to the test. What's he talking about? What's, what's being said there? Well, basically, it's the, the, this lawyer is the kind of person who comes to church to find out what's wrong with the pastor. Okay? He comes to find out where the gaps are in his theology. He comes to find out the weaknesses in his understanding. He comes to find out Where are the guys failing so that he can put a finger on the point of his failure and expose him as a fraud? Now, if you're you're here to do that with me, just call me. We'll go out for lunch. Or call my wife. Call my wife. My wife can tell you better than you can figure out what's wrong with me. And frankly, I can too. So let's go out for lunch, and I'll tell you. I'm happy to tell you. That's what this guy is doing. He's coming to put Jesus to the test. And then verse 29, the second thing that you see that is sort of beneath the surface of what is there, verse 29, he desires to justify himself. See, he wants to expose Jesus. And in exposing Jesus, he wants to establish on the basis of Jesus' failure, inadequacy, gaps and weaknesses, failings of whatever kind, He then wants to establish, in effect, his own righteousness. Okay? If he can expose Jesus' unrighteousness, weakness, failings, then he's got grounds for establishing his own righteousness. 
he can justify himself. You ever do that? It's subtle. You do it very subtly. It's like the, you know, the publican and the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray, right? What's the Pharisee say? Hey, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not the best there is to find. But thank God I'm not like that man. Thank God I'm better than that man. That's the kind of thing that this lawyer is doing, the kind of thing that he's engaged in. He's determined to expose Jesus, and he is determined to justify himself. Now, let's be clear about what we've got going on here, the the two people who are at center stage in this little encounter. You've got a lawyer, an expert in the law, as we've said. Um, If you'd gone to his office, you would have seen his diploma hanging on the wall, right? graduate of the University of Jerusalem Law School. He might have been a Pharisee. He could have been a scribe. The thing that is being emphasized here is his expertise with respect to Jewish law, graduate of the University of Jerusalem Law School, member of the University of Jerusalem Law Review, member of the Israeli Bar Association. And he's got all the credentials. And then you have Jesus on the other hand. And who is Jesus? Jesus is this poor, itinerant preacher, teacher, faith healer who comes from where? Nazareth. And what do they say about people who come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus is like from Joliet, Illinois, or Paducah, Kentucky. He's an Okie from Muskogee. He has no credibility. He has no credentials. And so you have the credentialed person, the person who knows a lot, the person who is an expert in what he knows, coming up against one who is in his mind, frankly, a country bumpkin. Well, clearly, this man wasn't in the temple some 20 years earlier when Jesus was a young boy. Luke chapter 2, verse 47. Jesus was a young boy, and he was befuddling the teachers of the day with his questions and his answers. Uh, Clearly, this lawyer wasn't around when the judgment was made about Jesus, that his understanding was greater than that of the PhDs of his day. Luke 2.47 says, Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. It doesn't look like it on the face of it, but basically what you have here is no contest. What you have here is no contest. This lawyer doesn't understand, hasn't seen that Jesus is the law. He is the law incarnate. He is the word of God incarnate. He possesses all of the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. And frankly, it's not a fair fight. Frankly, this attorney is chum for a feeding frenzy. (laughs) 
frankly, he is chopped liver for Jesus. But again, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how Jesus deals with him. He engages him. How many times have you seen a debate in which the superior debater begins to realize that he's the superior debater and he moves in for the kill and he destroys the one he's in debate with? But Jesus doesn't do that. He engages him. And this is where we move into this second point. What Jesus sees is a person with a problem, and his pedagogy, his teaching method, is designed to get at it, to get to the problem, to get at the issue. I tell you, I can't wait till we get into our own building. I'm sorry. I can't wait. I don't know how these poor kids survive this in here, you know, temperatures fluctuating and all this stuff. Okay. You back with me? We're moving away from Jesus' perception and what he sees to his pedagogy and how he teaches. And let me give you the bottom line. What Jesus wants to do as he engages this man is, again, move beneath the surface, move beneath the level of exteriors, move beneath the level of his expertise and drill down, drill down into his heart, into his soul, into the depth and the core of his being. Look at the exchange. Look at how it unfolds. The lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? And Jesus says to him, you're the lawyer. What does the law say? What is written in the law? You're the one with the expertise. What does the law say? Now here's the lawyer's line of reasoning. God clearly cares about the way we live. He has given us laws to govern the way that we live. He clearly cares about that. And the lawyer who is an expert in the law believes that if he knows the law and then obeys the law, he will be accepted by God because of his obedience to the law. Jesus knows that this is what's going on, knows this is what his line of reasoning is. And so the man responds and says, when Jesus asks what is written in the law, how do you read it? He answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do it and you will live. Now, what do you think the lawyer is thinking at this particular moment? You know what he's thinking. He's thinking in a very self-satisfied way that he does know the law and that he has kept the law and he doesn't see the left cross coming. He doesn't see the punch coming. He doesn't see the blow coming that is going to take him out that is going to take him down into the depth of his own heart so that his real heart is exposed. 
You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, I am doing it. But just to be sure, let me ask this other question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And in this exchange, that is a fatal question to ask. Please understand this. I use the illustration all the time of of Lucy engaged in conversation with Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I use it so much, I'm afraid it's going to get worn out. But when Lucy begins to understand that Aslan is a lion, she asks the obvious question, is he safe? And the answer is no, he's not safe. But he is good. Please understand The risen Christ is not safe, but he is good. He is so very good that he will not allow us to stay at the surface. He will not allow us to stay at the level of externals, outward conformity to some self-created code or somebody else's code, some imagined code or our own understanding of the law and what it means to conform to it. He won't stay there. When Jesus engages us, he wants to take us to this other place. Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. And the man in his smug comfort and self-righteousness The man in his smug comfort and self-righteousness asks the question, so as further to justify himself, who is my neighbor? He already has an answer in mind. He already has an answer in mind. He's probably thinking of his poor, destitute Israelite neighbor four blocks away living in another part of town. And the fact that perhaps he has given a gift for the poor Israelite destitute neighbor down the street. Perhaps he thinks about the person who cut in front of him in traffic in the Jerusalem market and how he didn't hold it against him. Perhaps he thinks of any number of things. But I will tell you, the last thing in the world that this Jewish man would have thought of when he asked the question, who is my neighbor, is a Samaritan. Absolutely the last person on the planet that he would have thought of. You see why I say Jesus wants to take him beneath the level of his surface conformity to his understanding of the law? Jesus wants to take him down into the depths of his own heart and frankly wants to expose him first to his own misunderstanding of the law. Jesus referring to a Samaritan, Jesus admonishing, encouraging, teaching that this Jewish man show compassion for a Samaritan in the way that a Samaritan showed compassion for this Jewish person would be like Jesus saying to an Irish Republican, an Ulster Orangeman, fell among thieves and an Irish Republican, not 
an American who happens to be Irish and Republican. But an Irish Republican who hates Ulster Orangemen. An Ulster Orangeman fell among thieves and an Irish Republican had compassion for him. Who is your neighbor? Irish Republican, Ulster Orangeman. It would be like Jesus saying to a Palestinian, a Jerusalem Jew fell among thieves. And a Palestinian going by the same way had compassion for him. And what did he do? He picked him up. He put him on his own mule, his own beast of burden. He took him to an inn. He gave him two denarii, which is in effect enough money to cover two months of lodging for this one who had been waylaid. It would be like Jesus saying, a Muslim jihadist fell among thieves and the father of a marine lieutenant who had been kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in Afghanistan came upon him and had compassion for him. I don't know what it is in your mind that represents in your mind the one person the one kind of person that you would be least likely to think of as you think about yourself seeking to give compassion to someone. That is the person whom Jesus describes in this parable for this Jew. A Samaritan, despised, rejected, and hated by Jews. They hated Samaritans so much that they would not go into Samaritan territory. They would go across the Jordan to the east. They would go up the east side of the Jordan and they would cross back over the Jordan from the east to the west to avoid going into Samaria north of Jerusalem. That's how much they despised, detested, and hated Samaritans. And so Jesus goes for the jugular. He engages him but he takes him beneath the level of his external conformity to show him, I said a minute ago, first, his failure rightly to understand the law. This expert in the law had forgotten all kinds of passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 22, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10, all kinds of passages in which Israel is admonished to care for the alien in the land. And it doesn't matter where that alien comes from. They are to care for the alien and they're to do it because they themselves were aliens who were rescued by the goodness and grace of God. This expert had forgotten the law and then having, having forgotten the law, he failed rightly to apply it. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is going deeper than our understanding our theology, if you will. Jesus' pedagogy isn't, it doesn't end with, we, we, we have to get this right, we, we to try to get it right. By the grace of God, we have to try to get it right. Pedagogy is not about imparting right ideas from one brain to another. 
Folks, that's not enough. As a pastor, I engage too many people across 30 plus years of ministry who have right ideas in their heads. And frankly, they're more interested in doing what this lawyer sought to do to Jesus than they are interested in rightly applying the truths that have been imparted to their brains. You are not a computer. Christianity is not about getting the right data onto the hard drive and hitting a keystroke so that the right result comes out. It's much more complex. It's much more complicated. It's much harder than that. And frankly, knowledge can do in us what it did for this attorney. It can make people proud. As Paul says, it can puff people up. Jesus wants to go deeper and farther than simply imparting right ideas to our brains. And it's not about, it's not ultimately about doing right things. Having a moral code that you and everybody else can conform to. That's what this lawyer and others in the scriptures got confused about. It's not about a list of 10 things or 15 things or 30 things that you do and that you expect others to do so that they can be a part of your group. Jesus wants to take us deeper than that. He wants to take us down into our hearts, into the deeper things of our souls to expose the very things that he exposed here. And why is that? And here we come to the last thing. There's the perception of Jesus. He knows you. He sees you. He understands you. You can't hide from him. You can't duck the left hook. It's going to get you if you engage Jesus. And the left hook is simply Jesus taking you down into the depths of yourself, not so that you might have more information up here, more knowledge up here, not so that you might behave better in order to impress me and impress God because he's not impressed. Jesus' purpose is to take us down into ourselves so that there might be more knowledge of self, self-knowledge. So that, and here's the big point, so that he might drive us out of ourselves and away from ourselves, away from our dependence on our knowledge, our dependence on our moral conformity, our dependence upon some other thing that we use to establish our righteousness. Jesus' whole purpose, his whole point, the end game for him is to take us down into ourselves to expose what we really trust, to expose what we really believe to be true so that we might see it for what it is and then be driven out of ourselves and away from ourselves so that we might come to him, the one who is the better good Samaritan. Who's the real good Samaritan? Who's the one who has really had compassion on the one who despised and rejected the very one who had extended the compassion to him. It is Jesus. Isn't it Jesus? 
Like, I, I don't, I don't want to play and trifle with the text here, but I've thought about this all week, um, as is the case. I mean, I just think about these things all week. And I thought, you know, at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, as those two disciples are walking with Jesus along the way, they're going to Emmaus, they're downcast, they're brokenhearted, they think the story is over, their hopes have been dashed and shattered, and Jesus comes alongside them, and beginning with Genesis and going through all the prophets and all the Psalms and all of the law, the whole of the Old Testament, he showed them in the whole of the Old Testament the things that were there about him. And if it's true of the Old Testament, isn't it true of the New? Shouldn't we be able to look at the New Testament accounts, the parables, the stories of Jesus, and see Jesus everywhere? And I think you see Jesus here. Jesus is the greater good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who loves the Jew who has despised him and who has rejected him and who indeed would have sought his death and did see his death. Jesus is the one who has had compassion on the very one who despised and rejected him. And that is me. And that is you. And Jesus who is the greater good Samaritan, despised and rejected of men, is the one who has had compassion upon us. And so as Jesus engages us, knows us, sees us, and seeks to take us below the surface of these externals into the depths of our hearts, he does that not to crush us. He does that not to kill us. He does that so that he, the good Samaritan, having opened up our hearts, might pour upon our hearts the oil, the oil that comforts and the wine that cures the wound. That's what the gospel is. And that's what Jesus does with this man. We don't know the end of the story. All we know is that Jesus said to him at the end, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go love as this Samaritan is loved. Go have compassion as this Samaritan has had compassion. But go, and this is what we see, go with your eyes always fixed on the better good Samaritan who has had limitless, infinite compassion for you. Always, always, with the greater and better Good Samaritan in our eyes. Let's pray together. And as we pray and as we are quiet for just this minute, I guess... I just want to ask us to be honest before the Lord. I want to invite you either now or sometime this afternoon to simply to be quiet before the Lord and, and acknowledge before the Lord as you, as you are led, as you are inclined. Acknowledge before the Lord that you are the lawyer. And yet beneath the surface, There is this 
cauldron of stuff. And I encourage you because of who Jesus is, who invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. I just want to encourage you in that quiet moment to come to Jesus, wherein you will find rest. Lord, please help us. Help us to do these two very hard things. Help us to get down into the depth of our hearts, the corruption of our hearts, the self-righteousness in our hearts, the arrogance of our hearts, pride of our hearts. And help us to see it for what it is and drive us out of ourselves. Back to you, Lord. We need for you, by your spirit, to give us grace to do this. So we ask that you would, in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Please stand, and we'll sing the first and the last verses of number 524. First and last verses. <clears throat> 